You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and cannabis curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, June 15th, 2022. This is episode number 302. I'm Menika Mahajan, the pot smoking PhD and founder of Mahajan Consulting, Stepping in this morning for our founder, Susan Soares, who's tending to the celebration of her father's life. Please keep Susan and her family in your thoughts today as the team does our best to make up for her brilliance behind the scenes. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 31,000 State of Cannabis NewsHour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today, we are talking about how cannabis retailers drive growth, not crime, consequences for a dad whose kid brought edibles to school, pot for potholes, Kentucky's Patient Access Advisory Committee, tribal cultivation in Montana, EPA's no pot rules for employees, consumer confusion, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you may get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamit. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as a co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. Rico, what do you have for us today? Thank you, Manica. Today, my story is coming from uh, Benzinga by Nic- uh, Nicholas Jose Rodriguez. Cannabis retailers drive economic growth, not crime, according to recent California study. Thanks to a recent economic analysis commissioned by the city of Sacramento, California, prohibitionists have one less excuse for blocking safe access. In a press release um, yesterday by Normal, uh, they reported a study found licensed cannabis businesses actually stimulate economic growth and are not magnets for crime. Uh, consistent with prior studies, investigators reported that homes in close proximity to uh, cannabis out- outlets experience a greater rise in value than uh, did other residents in the city. Authors also rebuffed the allegation that cannabis retailers were associated with the elevated risk of criminal activity. So between 2018 and 2021, fewer than 1% of all robberies and burglaries uh, reported uh, to the Sacramento Police Department were associated by uh, associated with cannabis business. Contrary to the popular belief, uh, retail cannabis is, dri- is a driver of social unrest and crime. The study found retail businesses have been consistently bolstering local surrounding economies by accelerating uh, job creation and consequently socioeconomic inclusion. Uh, this serves as a nice complement to 
other regional studies reporting on trends moving in a similar direction outside of California, like the one from February by Leafly and Whitney Economics showing state licensed cannabis industry adding over 100,000 new jobs in 2021. And um, resulting in 428,000 full-time workers currently. Also in 2020, uh, 2019, research studying the effects of legalization in retailers of retail dispensaries and neighborhood crime in Denver, uh, resulting uh, results showing an additional dispensary in a neighborhood leads to a reduction of 17 crimes per month per 10,000 residents, which corresponds, uh, corresponds to roughly a 19% decline relative to the average crime rate over the sample period. And finally, back in 2020, Normal was um, also first to report enactment of statewide policies regulating adult use sales being associated with rising home values, according to data published by a team, of, uh, university, a team at University of Oklahoma. Investigators uh, assessed the relationship between cannabis legalization and uh, regional home values as a positive thing, not negative. So next time you hear someone blaming cannabis businesses uh, for problems already existing, um, you can let them know women lie, Men lie, but numbers do not. And this comes to safe banking and that bullshit straw man argument Jason Beck always uses that it's better for economically diverse communities. It is. Here's Rico Lamite, Double Dad on the Street, <laughs> reporting for State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, team. What say you? I know Jason got some some bullshit uh, to come back with. Come I on, mean, I mean, come on, Rico. I mean, you can't seriously think that safe banking isn't going to help. Uh, uh, social equity applicants uh, yes, get again. away from. You're, you're, well, then, then if you it do think that, you're totally wrong and it, totally it helped, it helped wackadoodle with your thought yeah. process and how hey, this all works. When when the when the dust when the dust settles, you're going to see that there's no uptick in crime because of safe there banking. There already is you know, uptick in crime, after. bro. There's a major no, major major, major uptick in crime, the brother. The data showing the opposite, bruh. This the data showing just the opposite, man. Rico. Getting off the crime argument, going back to the first thing you said. So if safe banking is going to do nothing, you really think giving folks access to banking that is not crazy rates and able to bring things down and make life easier, you think that does nothing to help a business? Thank God Rico is not an economist. I don't have to be an economist. Just read the fucking data. Read the fucking data. There is no, there is no correlation with having safe banking and any kind of safety in the fucking hoods where there's going to be crime Already. So you like to ignore my question. With, with, Do you think banking will help businesses? That, look, banks, safe banking helps banks. Banks are biased. Okay. They don't, they're not, they're not going to lend somebody like me money. Let's be clear. So just because we get safe banking doesn't mean that marginalized communities, social equity applicants are going to be embraced by banks for loans or otherwise. That's just not how it works. Those rules are just not for everybody. So while I want safe banking for our industry, I'm not fooled for one minute that Bank of America is going to try to give me even a nickel based on my profile. That's a fact. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Well, I would not, uh, frankly, and I agree with you, Guy, I don't expect the major boys to get in and really start banking and doing anything for this industry until it's federally legal. I do believe, though, that when safe banking comes into effect, it will offer other options for people to receive money and get things at lower rates than what they're receiving now. The fees and that they put on cannabis businesses is ridiculous how exorbitant it is. I mean, businesses cannot survive that way. And I'm sorry that Rico, you truly believe that there is no crime related 
to running an all cash business. I think that's don't, no. Hold on, don't, don't put words in my mouth. I did not say that. I'm what saying that saying? Safe, banking, safe banking is not going to uh, have any kind of positive effect uh, on any. Uh, murders or any violent crime that are already happening in these neighborhoods. You all, you guys always try to tie safe banking to that. It's not going to help communities of color. It's going to help the big banks and it's going to help push the small operators out of the industry because all of the attention is going to go to the larger, uh, the, our larger entities first. The, the attention's already there. There was already just an article that came out the other day talking so why about are we how MSOs can borrow over $3 billion. Okay, we need, we need to do something to direct banking services to the smallest and to the black communities first. And until you do that, fuck safe banking. Let's keep it moving. <laughs> the industry's longest continuously operating retailer, also known as Kaiser Brose, and my photo negative, Jason Beck, is coming to the stage. He's also known as White Gucci in Detroit, uh, Gucci Blanco in Miami, and the boof free bloke when he's across the pond. Jason, what you got for us today, my man? Oh, yeah, Rico. First, I have to say, pass safe banking. No. But uh, nonetheless, my story comes out of Columbus, Ohio today, where an upper Arlington dad is ordered to pay families of students who got sick eating marijuana edibles at school. We covered this story a few weeks ago, but Scott Macri was sentenced Tuesday on three charges related to an April 22nd incident that sent five students home from school to the hospital. The Upper Arlington father, who pled guilty last month to three charges connected to an incident at his daughter's school, learned his sentence today in Franklin County Municipal Court. Scott Macri, 43, pleaded guilty in May to one count of including panic. Never heard of that charge. Obstructing official business and misdemeanor possession of a controlled substance. According to court records, Macri's 10-year-old daughter brought 50-milligram tablets of THC edibles to Windmere Elementary School on April 22nd. She had found them in her family's kitchen and thought they were leftover candies from Easter. She reportedly shared them with four of her friends and all were sent to the hospital from the school's cafeteria, displaying signs of impairment, nausea, hallucinations, and elevant heart rates, or elevated heart rates. Judge James P. O'Grady read two victim impact statements from two of the families of students who got sick at Tuesday's sentencing. Every night when our daughter lays down her head, she will no, no longer will allow us to shut her door, the judge read. Since the event took place on April 22nd, her door remains open for fear she will relive the hallucinations. School is no longer safe in her mind, he concluded. Macri, her, Macri himself spoke apologizing to the children, families, community, and his own family. I am truly sorry for all the worry and the turmoil that you've experienced, Macri said. Macri was ordered to pay court fees plus a $300 fine for inducing panic charge as well as a $5,000 restoration to the families affected. That money will be divided, each receiving $1,250 at most. He was sentenced to 180 days in jail. That was suspended for two years pending community control. And for the obstruction charge, he was sentenced to 90 days in jail. That was suspended for two years pending community control. And that's the misdemeanor charge of possession of a controlled substance. He was ordered to pay a $100 fine. Well, I, I still say it. I haven't heard of that charge before. That's a new one to me. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Parents, lock your shit up, man. Is that like lock her up? Rico? 
Nah, lock your fucking weed up so we don't have stories like this. Yeah, that that's really the message, Rico, because there's going to be, there's no excuse the minute you bring kids into it. I was just trying to look up how many kids accidentally get into other medicines, opiates, alcohol, other things that can be accessible. But yeah, our food that looks like gummies, it's a hard one. And that responsibility comes to us. No, straight up. Like, there's, there's too many great products out there. They look nice and they're, they're, they're very secure and, uh, and they, they test well. I, I, they, but can, these, these were all trap products. These are all trap products. It clearly states it, that it, it was it a 50 it doesn't matter edible. It doesn't matter if they're trap products or not. They can. Uh, it's, this falls on the parents. They need to make sure that these, that, that edibles, that flower, that, that all of their medicine is, is, is locked away. I agree with you 100%, Rico. I mean, all it does is a disservice to the industry because um, it makes it look as if these are unsafe products when all we really need are parenting. And it would be, I think that if products tasted a little bit more like cannabis, like they should, and not strawberry, perhaps kids would be less inclined to take them. I'm just saying. Yep. Let's keep it moving. All right, here we go. She's the CMO of the award-winning tech platform Event High and co-host of the groundbreaking Women Focus Blunt Brunch event series. Blunt Brunch. It's coming up next. It's Adelia Carrillo. Good morning, everyone. Today's article is New Brunswick Cannabis Farm Looking for Volunteer Testers for Its Product. Uh, Green Herb Farms, located in New Brunswick, Canada, is looking for volunteers to sample their products for free and in return would like them to provide feedback. Uh, Green Herb Farms is a cannabis cultivation and processing company located on the beautiful Acadian coast in New Brunswick, Canada, and actually has been licensed since August 27, 2021. Their focus is on supplying sun-grown and solventless cannabis products to the recreational and medical markets. Uh, a little bit more about this farm. It's, it was actually initially in Fort Erie, Ontario, and they moved it to St. Joseph de Kent, New Brunswick, almost two years ago. It is also located on the property of a decommissioned government of Canada building. So what can people expect? Uh, Greg Claroni, Green Herb Farms General Manager and Media Coordinator, wants volunteers of legal age for free cannabis sampling sessions. The reason they are giving away free cannabis is so that they can find willing participants to discernment to determine consumer consumption choices. So I, I was looking into this a little bit more. I was checking out what the application process was like. Um, it's pretty simple, but they do ask for, basically you can apply for three research uh, opportunities. You can volunteer to participate in cannabis consumption research. You can volunteer to participate in cannabis cultivation research or cannabis processing research. The sessions uh, are needed for a research product on their organic products, which he hopes to have on the shelves of cannabis uh, New Brunswick in two months months. And he states, once we establish which plants grow the best, we want to sample that product and have other people sample that product and tell us whether or not it's actually something consumers are going to want. He says, oh, can you guys still hear me? I just got a warning on my connection. We can hear you. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> um, he says, uh, okay, where was I? Have other people sample the product as well and tell us whether or not it's actually something consumers are going to want. There's no sense in growing a plant and having a product no one wants to sit on the shelf. It's expensive for everyone. The research was the researchers will help the company determine what consumers prefer best. Um, they also are going to take the time to put the plants out. They're going to do the test, invite researchers, um, and again, just gather more information about what consumers would want. Um, the... You know, they, they also discuss in this article a little bit more about their security and why they invested nearly 100000 in fencing alone across their five acres. 
They also have infrared cameras as well. Um, But then they go back to the main topic of this article and they state, when asked how Green Herb will ensure that they get the right volunteers who are doing the research for the right reasons, they know it's going to be trial and error. They're going to invite people out, let them know they have the opportunity to do this the first time. And if it doesn't work out, they're not going to invite them back. People actually have been signing up every day, including a group from Brazil, which I found very interesting. He hopes to start the sampling sessions either this weekend or next. Um, and those that are interested in learning more that want to find out about this research project, go to Green Herb. Uh, you can research them on Green Herb Farms. They have a website. Um, so I'm just curious to see, you know, what do you all think so about this? Is this <laughs> just wanted to know what you all are thinking about this. And this is Ellie, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Sorry, Adelia, I didn't mean to cut you off. So I have a question. If groups from Brazil are going to be joining in this testing process, does that mean that they're shipping it to Brazil or the people from Brazil are coming to Canada? That's what I was actually trying to research. I couldn't find out who was from Brazil. I even contacted this the, the Greener Farms just to see if I could gather some more information because I found this article interesting. I wanted to see if, you know, is this something more farmers are going to start doing? Um, but yeah, I'm not too sure. I, I, I don't think, I, I mean, I, yeah, I'm not too sure. I'll find out if they reply. I'll let you guys know, though. I mean, I think that this is great. I think this is brilliant, but they're, they're absolutely right. They're going to have to find people that are really about the research and not just trying to get high. You know, I think it's going to be important for them to screen the right individuals to come and test the product so that they are really about the research. Like, you know, they're going to be keeping a journal and, you know, they should be asking them some preliminary questions like how, how often do you consume? Do you know what terpenes are? That kind of stuff. I agree. The the form actually wasn't that lengthy, which was very surprising. So I, I agree with you. They definitely need to beef it up. Maybe there's another process after they fill out this form. Um, but from just initial look, there wasn't that much that they asked. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's do it. She splits her days and nights between political strategy and baking delicious treats. But our next correspondent is a full-time feisty redheaded conservative with Mayflower roots and an unhealthy love for safe banking. Up next, the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. Rico, I've got an unhealthy amount of love for everybody. Uh, My headline today is coming from Marijuana Moment. GOP Senate candidate pushes pot for potholes. Marijuana-funded infrastructure plan and hilarious campaign ad. Pot for potholes, that's the marijuana-funded infrastructure plan that one Republican Missouri candidate for U.S. Senate is proposing in a catchy campaign ad. As C.W. Gardner has worked to stand out in a crowded field of dozens of opponents, he released a spot in April that includes a plan to federally legalize cannabis and use some of the resulting tax revenue for to repair America's roads. Gardner is aware that the odds are stacked against him in the race, but he's seizing the opportunity on a platform of fixing things, including the country's cannabis laws. He said, when I get to Washington, D.C., I plan on introducing my pot for potholes legislation. Legalize marijuana at the federal level and take a portion of the tax money collected to bankroll research and development for pothole eradication. He said, I want to couple that with launching a national pothole task force. Scientists, engineers, manufacturers, entrepreneurs, and federally funded research universities all working towards a common goal, eradicating potholes from this great country. It would be a task on the scale of the Manhattan Project that the U.S. government facilitated in the push to develop nuclear weapons, he said. The the pothole cannabis and infrastructure plan would be the Missouri Project. He said, I think everyone's kind of on board with both aspects of it. 
Potholes are a big talk around St. Louis right now. Uh, it's two things that I might not go hand in hand when you look at it. It's more of a branding that works together, but I think it's two pretty popular ideas. Missouri voters will likely get the chance to decide on enacting marijuana legislation um, in the state via a ballot initiative come November. Gardner can't necessarily claim the idea as his own, however. Not only have advocates generally pushed for marijuana legalization as a revenue generator that could be used in part for infrastructure purposes, but former Rhode Island Governor Lincoln Chafee uh, specifically promoted a pot for potholes agenda nearly a decade ago. In any case, the Gardner ads is yet another example of how politicians across the political spectrum have become conformable, leaning into the cannabis reform issue. Even in a Republican primary, many congressional candidates aren't shying away from the policy anymore. They are aiming to win the marijuana vote. Uh, uh, truly, I, I just thought this was a cute story today. Um, but the bigger the bigger side of things is, frankly, that so many uh, politicians out there are now embracing marijuana as part of their platforms. Um, and I think that is only going to help destigmatize uh, the plant, um, regardless of what side of the aisle that they come from. I don't care what they're proposing, as long as folks are out there and talking about cannabis on the federal level um, and trying to bring awareness to what uh, they would like to do in their states and federally, I think it's a great thing. This Gretchen for State of Canvas News Hour. Thanks for bringing that article, Gretchen. I, I hope a lot of that was tongue-in-cheek. I hope that there are bigger things that Americans can aspire to than solving the terrible problem of of potholes. But uh, And maybe Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania will get the memo and start to accept that marijuana into his life. We have a major problems across America with potholes. I mean, just driving around L.A., it's pothole after pothole in every freaking lane. So I would support this as far as... Uh, cannabis taxes going to support potholes, but I have a feeling that it'll just get sucked up. The revenues will get sucked up in all of the union efforts to with fixing all of the potholes. You know, I mean, a lot of this would have been uh, covered in, uh, in several infrastructure bills if people really cared about potholes in America. What are you talking about? Everybody cares about potholes and why they're not covered in infrastructure bills is because they're on a municipal level. So that's the problem there. So I think you need a huge federal push. I love pot for potholes, um, and I would definitely advocate for it, and I'm happy to advocate for it if I could somewhere on Facebook. I, I think if Republicans are going to solve the world of cannabis problems, they can also fix potholes at the same time. Yeah, you got to elevate, Rick. We got to talk federal potholes versus state potholes, Rico. You got to elevate your uh, thinking here. So, you know, you guys, we just keep throwing the R word around. And frankly, it's a little bit much considering every one of those politicians says one thing and then literally says the opposite. And the first thing was more evil than the next. So let's just cool down with encouraging people to vote or side with folks who will literally do the opposite and have not really been in the will of the people as of late. I'm having some fun with you, um, especially because of this story is more on the tongue in cheek side of things. But I do think that truly, like I said before, Anyone, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're coming from, talking about cannabis is going to help move things forward. I just hope people are uh, very wary uh, they, uh, of, of who uh, is the messenger putting out these uh, fucking messages left and right because they're all liars. Well, coming up next, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's a delivery van with a delivery smoother than a DHL and a price point lower than FedEx. 
That's right. It's Clark Kent delivery coming next to the stage is Christopher Smith. He's the communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. What do you have this morning for us, Clark? Thanks so much, Jason. Good morning, Rico. Susan, we're thinking about you. We love you so much. Last week, I went to my high school reunion. I went to this old, deeply conservative, old school New England boarding school. So it won't surprise you that my dear old friends call me the liberal, as if that were not a compliment. I told them Obama is my pronoun to really freak them out. It works like a charm on the khaki boys who don't wear socks. But one Chad, this really happened, one Chad sat me down and asked me if I believed America is a racist country. I answered, fuck yes. And he said, oh, I don't believe it. I don't think it's true. There are racist people, but not that blah, 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 blah. Since, since Fox News is his pronoun, I think I'll send him this story, which the universe provided at the very first opportunity I've had to present at State of Cannabis since I spoke with him. It's from Marijuana Moment. It was reprinted with permission from the Montana Free Press. The original author is Max Savage Levinson. Montana officials restrict tribal marijuana cultivation to smallest license tier. I saw this headline this morning and it grabbed me. I said, holy shit, the cowboys are trying to keep Native Americans on the reservation in cannabis too. Here's the story. During the 2021 legislative session, lawmakers included a provision in their uh, framework for their uh, legalization for for cannabis legalization that allocates a single automatic license to each of Montana's tribal nations to both grow and sell. The facility cannot be located on the reservation land and grow and sell operations must be located at the same place, all of which seems odious and annoying to me. But uh, more from the article after the session, the Economic Affairs Interim Committee confirmed with the Department of Revenue that even though the bill defines these combined use licenses as tier one, that's the smallest grow size. So the maximum is 1,000 square feet of grow space. They could, the, the rule was at the time was that they could scale up over time just like any other conventional license. But on June 2nd, Brendan Beatty, director of the Department of Revenue, sent a letter to the committee insisting that tribal cultivation operations cannot expand beyond tier one licenses. So talk about a fuck you to the tribes, right? Native Americans only can only apply, they, they can apply later on in addition, but in this situation, they get one license per tribe, 1,000 square feet of grow. The grow has to be at the shop. The whole thing has to be off res, which means unnecessary travel, time spent, fuel costs. And by the way, they've got to go get land in, in white country and no opportunity to expand according to this letter. This special treatment is only for Native Americans. Racism doesn't get any clearer than this. Now, to be fair, this attitude is far from universal. State Senator Jason Small, he's a member of the Northern Cheyenne Tribe, said that during the last legislative session, a lot of the tribes and legislators saw this, saw legalization as an opportunity finally for the tribes to get in on equal footing on the ground floor of the industry to start bringing in additional revenue for themselves. And he pushed for the automatic combined use license during the session and has additionally provided input to Northern uh, Cheyenne tribe members who have considered acquiring a license. But these tribes are realized that they're getting fucked. So guess what? No tribe has applied for a license. None. This type of stupidity not only pu punishes Native Americans unnecessarily, but it's another action that virtually guarantees the perpetuation of the illicit market in Montana and confirms my campfire chat with Chad at Deerfield. And I am done speaking. 
Um, Christopher, I don't I don't understand why the state has jurisdiction over the tribals because the tribals have their own jurisdiction within their tribal land. So why couldn't they just do whatever they want to do on their own tribal land and tell the state of Montana to go fuck off? I I certainly don't know myself. I guess you could ask. That would have been my question as well. I don't understand why they even need to bother applying for anything. They do what they want. I, mean, I think this I'm is, the, I think this is the same reason. I think this, I don't believe they're as free to do that as you think, and not in that's yes, not true because they are yeah, state state by no, state. The, the, the same reason the feds went in there and, and raided the gentleman's uh, um, farm in Oklahoma on the reservation, like, like the shit happens, and in New Mexico, and maybe, maybe they don't have the maybe jurisdiction if they were, to be able to do that. Well, well, they still do it. Well, because they do why? it anyway because they're not white. They do it anyway. Let's give it a buck. They're, yes. they're not. They're not white. They serve as a threat. Maybe if they were a bunch of Bundys then, on then, a hill why, why, and, and, and why outside why of Portland, Nuwu they would have. They would have been, been successful. raided by the feds because Nuwu's doing it. When, when, crazy when you're, numbers. When you're white, you can, when you're white, you so can you're saying that so Nuwu is you can white. Challenge other, Nuwu is other white. Nuwu is white. It's not as simple. Nuwu is not owned by the tribe. Nuwu is leasing out their land to a white man who owns the license. Say it again. Nuwu is does not own is not owned by the tribe. Nuwu is owned by a white man who has license. They are renting out, leasing out land on tribal land. Regardless if they're renting out land on tribal land, the tribal council controls what actions happen on that property. So the tribe is still in control Agreed. of whatever is happening. Yeah. I don't think that's, that's debatable. Accurate. You know, working with tribes here in in NorCal, most of them are so scared that they're going to lose their federal funding, which is so necessary. And believe me, if the local Montana officials are upset with them, that can also upset their local funding. Most of the time when we've tried to work with tribes to support in any way, their main reticence is bringing the ire of the feds. And if you don't have the states on your side, you can see how that could even bring more federal enforcement. I think that's probably at the root of it as well. BIPOC people's track, the BIPOC people's track history, uh, track record of challenging these government agencies on shit like that is never ended well. So, so just saying that, oh yeah, you can do whatever you want when you're on the reservation is easily, it's a lot easier said when you're a white person. And I'm just giving it a buck. And Christopher, were you able to share this article with your chat friend? I, I literally just got the article today at the first opportunity to present here at State of Cannabis, but I'm absolutely going to send it to him right when we're done. Say hi there, bro. Uh, racism doesn't exist in America. Read this. Seriously. Just a few bad apples. It's time for the relight. I don't. Oh. You were tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Often the things expressed in the State Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. This well-known and revered industry OG, veteran, dope dad, and defender of the culture never, is never hesitant to speak up for the industry's legacy. Up next is the co-founder and CEO of 2022 Emerald Cup champion, Poppin' Barkley, here to bless us all with a little G-code gospel. It's Guy Rocourt. What you got for us today, Guy? Thank you. I mean, thank you, Rico. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Jason. Um, today, my article comes from Precision Newswire, PR Newswire, National new national poll shows most consumers 
are confused about cannabis product safety and standards. Now, I want to say right up this poll was sponsored by SICPA, the compliance agency, and done by the Harris poll on behalf of SICPA. SICPA is a leading com- uh, provider of regulatory compliance solutions and the fa- and also the va- and this was also sponsored by the Foundation of Cannab- Cannabis Unified Standards that goes by the acronym FOCUS. Uh, the result, just to, let me start first with how the survey was done. The survey was conducted online within the United States by the Harris Poll between April 26th and April 28th, 2022, 2,069 adults ages 18 plus, among whom 1,220 had never used cannabis products, or so they say, having seen these surveys before. Um, the online survey is not based on a probability sample and therefore no estimates of theoretical sampling error can be calculated. For the complete survey, survey methodology, you can go to their website. So essentially, this survey put out some facts that I don't think will surprise folks. Nearly three quarters of Americans, Amer- of American cannabis consumers think cannabis products are grown and produced using consistent product safety standards, regardless of what state they're purchased in. More than four or five Americans overall think that no matter what, where their the business is located, they're licensed to grow, produce cannabis products I'm sorry, think no matter where they're located, the businesses licensed to grow and produce cannabis products must meet consistent environmental standards. More than three quarters of Americans believe cannabis employers are held to the same health and safety standards for uh, workers in other industries. Now, here's where the problem comes, you guys. This article is, is sharing these facts and the body of the article, the main two paragraphs by a gentleman from Sigma, the, uh, Sigma, the chi- or a uh, woman from Sigma, uh, Karen Gardner, their chief marketing officer, is trying to state that those are not facts. The implication by this regulatory body or regulatory software, which failed here in California, candidly, because it was not the best, my opinion, is trying to say that licensed businesses in other states and in California may not be treating their workers correctly, may not be meeting consistent environmental standards and may not be using consistent and safe safe standards. I take a little bit of exception with that notion because what I know definitively about the compliant marketplace is if you are licensed, typically the rules are onerous and way above generally regarded as safe. So I appreciate that SICPA is trying to maybe sell their product and push compliance and track and trace and these kinds of things. And I also appreciate focus wanting for us to have national cannabis standards. I do believe that. However, the slight shade, because it is slight shade, because I don't believe they have the facts to back it up. They are inferring that people believe this and maybe shouldn't. I would say people should believe this because we have fought and struggled to get licensed businesses. And the whole point of compliant licenses and track and trace is to make sure that there are some health and safety standards and consistency for consumers. And I do believe that is true here in California, Washington, Oregon. Uh, definitely Michigan, definitely Oklahoma. So it's like I, 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 Arizona, Nevada. It's like these states have real safety standards and some consistent me- measures. Now, they're not unified throughout the, 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 uh, the nation. Perhaps we could do better. But to infer that new cannabis users might need to be suspect about licensed, biz- licenses, licensed businesses is a little bit 
bridge too far for me. And my gleaning of this article is Karen Gardner and her friends at Sigma are just trying to get their software to be a dominant software as far as track and trace and accountability in the United States. My opinion, this is Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Guy, I have yeah. a qu question for you here. Um, so do you think, as a, as a licensed producer, do you think that the California standards, because I know you operate in California, um, are at the same level of federal standards for other food products? They are beyond, and I'll explain to you why. Okay. Final form. So, for instance, when you get packaging from, let's say, I don't know, China, I don't want to, I don't, I shouldn't have said it that way. When you get packaging from overseas, I apologize for that. When you get packaging from overseas and you don't test it, it could have trace amounts of lead. We found that out the hard way because even though I was upset about testing in final form, when I sent in my tinctures, it kept popping. I tried to figure out for six months what it was. It was the bottle. Okay. Right now, I can't find certain excipients because they won't pass testing because they're filled with garbage, especially essential oils. I'm having trouble staying on shelf because my essential oils have to be steam distilled because when I put them in my natural product, that ends up showing on testing. So definitely in California, testing in final form, top notch. Now you go to Colorado where it's kind of like on the honor system and you send a sample and it's not tested by the whole batch. Perhaps there could be nefarious actors, but at least there is still a sampling testing system. And when you send that sample in, it is tested throughout the entire product. So all their ingredients also are typically way above generally regarded as safe. Gee, I'm with you 100%. I think this is a total, total puff piece that's just trying to steer a narrative towards one company getting a government contract. Well, and to be fair to, not that I'm going to be fair to SIGPA, but this is a press release. It's not an article. So, yes, of course, it's skewed towards they've done a wonderful job here on their poll. So, you, Gretchen, you agree it's a puff piece? It's a press release. It's not an article. It's puff and piece. It's so great to hear the level of expertise that you guys bring to this. It just opens my eyes. I feel like I'm in a seminar when I, when I hear you guys talk. So thank you. Always glad to help, Christopher. Except when they talk about safe banking. That's important. safe banking. But do we really think, frankly, that this poll is wrong? Because is it not putting forward that consumers are confused by what is out there? Yes. Yeah, consumers are assuming that they're getting... Um, no, the, th the same standards that's the fun that's where that's where i got a little bit you know bent out of shape i think consumers are confused i think that the information around uh you know what cannabis dosing there's definitely need for more education what i didn't like is this notion of like okay all these folks are for cannabis and they believe these things and that's good because we've done a good job in the cannabis industry of showing that licensing is hard and that we are regulating. And yeah, when you have a license, I think it's fair for consumers to believe that you are held to some standards. And that is in fact true. What I didn't like about the article is that SIGPA is subtly, subtly putting fear in it. And the minute we put fear and use fear mongering as a tactic, that's not good because our industry, we don't have that luxury. Just, or like, just like the early, early articles, the minute you put fear or you bring the kids into it, that is a real detriment to our overall history because there are still folks, oh, I don't know, I'm gonna go ahead and call her out, like Laura Ingram, still thinking that somehow this is reefer madness. And so we need to be very careful when everybody try, anybody tries to fear monger towards our industry and SICBA kind of took this data, which basically says, I think things that are true in terms of how Americans feel about cannabis and their relative and its relative safety and tried to put a little fear shade on it. And I just wanted to make sure we talk about that.
I hear you, Guy. And truly, if a reporter is to come across this press release, they need to do due diligence. They need both sides. Uh, they can't just print press releases, which often they love to do because it's the easiest thing. And, and I will say that that uh, consumers definitely um, are, are totally confused. Um, and, and that's because these states don't put enough emphasis on on uh, on the on educating the consumer base on how to identify between track shops and illicit shops. Most consumers won't be able to tell you the difference because a lot of the same products they see in both stores. I mean, what do we want them to do? Publish information that's like, hey, here's how you tell a trap shop from a legal shop. Trap yes, shop, yes, the state, the, 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 state, the state should be putting public information campaigns together to educate the general public on this and a whole host of other things as well. It's funny that you say that because the original sick book, you know, one of the reasons why I was a little irritated is they had these little tax stamps, just like the ones you see on cigarettes and had that on every package. And I'm sure if a representative was here, the notion that we need to have these like colorful little stickers that if they break, you have to pay to get another one put on every package so that the consumer, just like your cigarettes, have that tax stamp. That's how you know it's official. I think they would want us to go that way. And hmm, I'm not sure about that either. Well, Guy, how would yeah, you that's feel a total about, racket. How would you feel about some type of, you know, just sign in the windows, state approved? I mean, they're trying to do that license. in L.A. right now with that de with that decal system. But I mean, with 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 3D printers the way they are, with Amazon the way that it is. I mean, you know how easy it is to make your own and put it up there. And anybody that manufactures products can tell you that it seems like it's simple to attach a sticker, but that human resource starts to blow up your cogs with the quickness. Yeah, sticker remediation is actually a costly reality. I mean, a much better way for the state to do it is the state to put up an actual website with all the licensed entities and let people search by zip code to find where their nearest retailer is. I mean, that would make a lot more sense than a sticker that's easily to be forged. We, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I think Weed Maps could serve that service. I'm just saying. I was just thinking that, Guy. Great minds think alike. Look at that. Red and blue making green. <laughs> purple is a great compliment to green. Agreed. I'm fond of purple. All right. Coming up next, this beard was born and bred in New York. Maybe that's why this beard commands such a presence, because Baby, it's cold outside. So cold that the beard was compelled to move to sunny Long Beach, California, where the beard received a law degree. Known in the bar exam as the Brandon Beard Award for high scores, this intellectual IP attorney and CEO of Fruit Slabs is none other than Brandon Dorsky. Let's go, Brandon. What do you have for us today? Uh, today, I have something, uh, a study coming out of Harvard Health. Uh, the title is Cognitive Effects of Long-Term Cannabis Use in Midlife by Kevin Hill, MD, and Michael Sue, MD, and it reports the long-term effects of continuous cannabis use are not well understood, in part because of criminality and limitations on long-term research studies, but they've discovered that long-term cannabis use can lead to de cognitive decline. Over the increase in potency and proliferation of legalization has led to an explosion in the availability of products, which might have impacted the results of this study, although this study was done out of peop on people who live in New Zealand. The research was published in the American Journal of Psycho Psychiatry, and it closely followed almost 1,000 individuals in New Zealand from age 3 to 45 to better understand the impact of cannabis on brain function. 
The research concluded that individuals who use cannabis for several years or more, and at least weekly, exhibited impairments in cognition. Long-term cannabis users saw an IQ decline of five and a half points on average from childhood, and there were noticed deficits in learning and processing speed compared to those that did not use cannabis. The higher the frequency of cannabis use, the greater the measured cognitive impairment was, suggesting a causal link. The study also claims to have found that people who knew the long-term cannabis users uh, well observed that they had developed memory and attention problems. But there was no mention of how that data was collected or measured in a scientifically sound way, although the study's authors claim they controlled for some factors like socioeconomic status and childhood intelligence. The overall impact of cannabis on cognition, on cognition was measured and deemed greater than that of alcohol or tobacco use. Long-term cannabis users had smaller hippocampi, the area of the brain responsible for learning and memory, and individuals who used, but individuals who used cannabis less than once a week and without any history of dependence did not have any observable cannabis-related cognitive deficits, which suggests there is a range of use that has no resulting impact on cognitive function. The research overall reveals that more studies are needed on cannabis use and brain health, particularly to explore how use may impact the risk of developing dementia, since midlife cognitive impairment is associated with higher rates of dementia. The article noted that some long-term users may develop brain fog, lower motivation, attention deficits, and more. It read to me like a, a little bit of a reefer madness scare piece. The article did, did then go on to suggest some ways to lessen or reverse cognitive decline including trying a slow taper, where you gradually decreased consumption or the potency of what you're consuming, working directly with your doctor, giving your tapering off or your cutoff of cannabis consumption some time, as it takes some time for cognitive results to appear, to try objective cognitive tracking, or to consider alternative strategies like aerobic exercise, mindfulness practices, and meditation. Um, one thing the article did note was the increasing potency of cannabis over time may have contributed to these effects being observed. They did talk about how cannabis used to be 1% to 4% THC by weight in the 70s and is now 15 to 30% in today's market. Uh, they didn't really talk about how it's pushing past 30% with flour and sometimes over 50% when you are talking about infused products and concentrates. Interesting read, but a little bit of a scare piece. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Hey, Brandon, thank you for that. I got to say something. Yo, look, first of all, it, it just shows that these folks don't really understand what can what cannabis use is, especially once you are at a normalized level. I hope this was just with adults because I think Anytime you have kids under the age of, I'd say, even arguably 25 that are formative, we want not, we would not want them to have any regular abusive habits, alcohol, tobacco, or otherwise. That being said, in later life, I can tell you that, one, they probably just don't give a fuck about the study. Cannabis is an amazing, amazing product that, yeah, it draws your focus and draws you to what's important. And doing this study probably wasn't that important. So there's cognitive decline and there's focusing on what's important, in my opinion. It's like, I, I don't believe, given just my personal experience and many and many professionals that I deal with, that cannabis takes you off your game. In fact, in an ever-increasing stressful world, I find the cannabis users are much easier to sit across the table with and work with because they are just a little bit more in check, fear, ego, 
and otherwise making them, I just think, better better people. That's me, a friend in weed. I yeah, just, I, can I just add a little something here, Dr. Felicia? Uh, there's some things that are coming out like recently, like in the last year or so, where th- we're showing that chronic stress, depression, anxiety, neglect, all of these things can impact the brain development and people can look like they've been abusing substances when really their mother or they have had chronic mood disorders. So there's a lot of things that can affect brain development that we're just now learning about over the last year or two. So I just want to add that. Yeah, this is nothing more than a propaganda puff piece, the clear definition of fake news. And and doctor, haven't we started to see cannabinoids being used as neuroprotectants, especially when it relates to Alzheimer's, dementia, and then of course we know with Parkinson's and other diseases that that, that's also a a, a factor. But I I feel like there's been some research done around specifically cognitive awareness amongst older folks using cannabis. Yes, there has. You know, our government has a patent on it because it says cannabinoids (laughs) protect the brain, not just CBD, cannabinoids. So Yes, it's it's neuro, it's a neuroprotectant. You know, people who have strokes um, have less damage when they have cannabinoids on on board. So I think, you know, the things I said earlier, in addition to, you know, you don't know what people are smoking or whatever what's on their product. You know, there's environmental toxins that can cause, you know, affect the brain. So you know, this study is a little shady. It doesn't it doesn't fit the deep pocketed narrative. I. Yeah, I think this is a little bit uh, misleading considering the director of medicine at Harvard School of Education, um, Dr. Lester Grinspoon, who has a strain named after him for all of the extensive work he's done towards cannabis and promoting cannabis as medicine, as neuroprotectants, as cancer agents. Um, He gave his son cannabis at the age of 12 to get through all of his issues that he was going through from from cancer treatment. So... um, Scare tactics and propaganda are at the head of my list on this, considering um, the the history of that that medical the the Harvard Medicine School. So, like I always say, follow the money. But let's keep it moving. She's an attorney at law, focusing on cannabis entertainment and psychedelics, and does a phenomenal job documenting her adventures on social media in her appropriately titled podcast. Shall we talk? So, before you hit the stage today, I need to ask you directly, Shalina. Shall we? Oh, we shall, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Kentucky Governor Issues Medical Cannabis Executive Order After the Senate Kills Bill. Earlier this year, House Bill 136, which would establish a medical cannabis program in Kentucky, passed the House of Representatives, but it did not move ahead in the Senate. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir states in a press release video, which was posted on Twitter, that he was dismayed and frustrated that the General Assembly once again failed to pass legislation for legalizing medical cannabis. He acknowledges and stresses that other states have been providing cannabis to patients in great need of it and that Kentucky should be doing the same. As stated by a press release on Kentucky.gov, through an executive order, which you can click here to view, the governor named 17 initial members who have relevant experience in healthcare, treatment of lipid use disorder and other diseases of addiction, law enforcement, criminal justice and advocacy for medical cannabis. The committee will soon travel the state and listen to Kentuckians' views on medical cannabis and provide that feedback to the governor. Secretary of the Justice and Public Safety Cabinet Carrie Harvey and Secretary of the Public Protection Cabinet Ray Perry will serve as co-chairs of the committee. And then you can view the rest of the members below. 
Uh, the governor states polling suggests 90% of Kentucky adults support legalizing medical cannabis, while at the same time, far too many in our state who could benefit from it are suffering. It is simply time that something more is done. I want to make sure every voice is heard as I am weighing executive action that could provide access to medical cannabis in the Commonwealth. Medical cannabis is often utilized as an alternative to highly addicted opioids, many of which are still prescribed to deal with patients' pain. And while lawmakers in Frankfurt have failed to act, a total of 38 states, including neighboring Illinois, Missouri, Ohio, Virginia, and West Virginia, allow cannabis for medical use when prescribed by qualified individuals to help provide treatment for such medical conditions as cancer, ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, epilepsy and seizures, Parkinson's disease, Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, severe and chronic pain, and post-traumatic dis uh, post disorder, what are your thoughts on this executive order? My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Shalina, I love this executive order, and I love that it's in Mitch McConnell's backyard. I think this is going to help, and I think that it's really going to put it forward, and then Mitch can shut his mouth uh, whenever he comes up to bitch about certain things being added to different bills uh, in the, uh, on, the, on the federal side. I think it's very good to see this happening in Kentucky. Should we call him Mitch McConnell now? No, we call him Marijuana Mitch because he actually legalized cannabis, even though he didn't realize it was the farm bill. However, I am ex so elated for Kentuckian and Kentuckians um, that the governor took this action. This is this is fantastic news. I know I've had a, conversations with a number of different lawmakers from Kentucky o over the years, and their number one reason why cannabis would never be legalized in Kentucky is because of the state troopers. And so now I'm, I'm interested to see what type of pushback the state troopers union puts back uh, on this bill and the types of pressure they put on the government going forward. I thought it was cocaine, Mitch. It's marijuana, Mitch. It's Moscow, Mitch. Yertle the turtle. I like the turtle. The turtle one's pretty good. Let's keep it moving. You got the last one, Jason? Oh, yeah. Coming up next to the stage, it's a pot-loving PhD and champion of common sense cannabis policy. No, we're, real going life to, no we're, we're going to Dr. Felicia. Oh, I didn't see that. I'm sorry. No, you're not. You're going to Dominica. Oh, I was right. <laughs> That's right. Angel just got their wings. Um, coming back to Menica Mahajan, coming up next to the stage, it's a pot-loving PhD and champion of common sense cannabis policy. A real-life alternative activist remaining optimistic in the midst of the cannabis chaos. Coming next to the stage and closing us out today is none other than Menica Mahajan. Thank you so much, Jason. Today, I'm talking about the EPA, an independent agency under the executive branch intended to foster government, governmental action on behalf of the environment. Well, guess what? The EPA wants to remind workers that they can't consume state legal cannabis if they also want to maintain good standing with their employer. Marijuana Moment obtained an email with the subject line, employee obligations regarding a drug-free workplace that was sent out on Thursday. In it, EPA's acting administrator in the Office of Mission Support reiterated the federal cannabis ban in light of updated guidance from the Office of Personal Management and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. It's worth hearing the language that's used, so I'm going to quote a few parts for, for you at the top of this segment. The EPA said that, quote, legislative efforts by U.S. states and jurisdictions, including the District of Columbia, as well as foreign countries, to remove criminal prohibitions on medical or recreational use of marijuana or, or on CBD products do not alter federal law or executive branch policies regarding a drug-free workplace. Despite changes in state laws and social norms, the use of marijuana is illegal under federal law, even when obtained through prescription or when used in a jurisdiction where such use is permitted. Furthermore, employees could be subject to disciplinary action 
a negative suitability de determination and may be determined ineligible for access to classified information or to hold a sensitive position. Employees who are using illegal drugs are expected to discontinue such use and to refrain from using Ill illegal drugs in the future. Employees who believe that they may have a drug problem are encouraged to consider available treatment, counseling, or rehab programs as appropriate. So I'm gonna skip some, uh, some information here because I do wanna, we're, we're kind of running low on time here. But in addition to this employment piece, um, the, which is said to uh, apply across the board that employees would not be able to consume cannabis even in state legal markets, the memo reiterates an investment rule that applies more narrowly to employees who work in designated security positions or who are directly investing in stocks or business ventures pertaining to growers or retailers. They could lose access to sensitive materials or be rendered ineligible for such roles. But indirect investments related to cannabis growers or retailers are exempted. That includes investments in a publicly traded diversified mutual fund. And the memo characterizes such investments as not relevant for purposes of determining eligibility for access to classified information or to hold a sensitive position. So it's okay to play the finance game with corporate cannabis as long as you're not investing in just one smaller company, but generally profiting from a collection of the biggest players only. And it's not okay to actually consume what one invests in. Interesting. I'm Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I know we got closed out now. It is the top of the hour, but I just wanted to say quickly there, that's the easiest example of following the money, follow the fucking money. The people that that make the rules, that make the laws, they're allowed to invest in individual stocks and shit like that. And they're allowed to support the biggest of, uh, of the big through these uh, uh, the mutual funds, but they can't support the little guys. So safe banking is going to only uh, make this worse. Yeah, safe banking is not going to make this worse. The EPA is 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 totally ridiculous in this statement. And I'll tell you what, if the EPA feels this way, they need to make it so that Congress can't play into the stock market as well. That's what I'm saying, Jason. Safe banking is going to just uh, allow more money. Safe to be banking is going to help form. so many people in so many ways. It's not even funny. It's going to lower <laughs> crime across the board. Come on, Rico, get it together. We've reached the top of the hour. That was a great show. If you missed any of it, you can catch it anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and to our pinup girl today, Susan Sores. Thank you, audience, for being such an important part of our show. You've had your daily dose. Now go out there and make a difference. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. <laughs> Safe banking is a lie. Big red waves coming to a neighborhood near you. Keep bringing the spice. Hey, what are you still doing here? The show's over. You just don't want to leave, do you? I know. We love you too. Help us grow by grabbing some of our merch. We've got hats, bags, hoodies, water bottles, all the standards. It would really mean a lot. Go to justsaycare.org backslash shop today. 
Really, I mean it. Today! With the supply chain issues, you might get it by Christmas. The good news is that inflation will be so bad, you'll be locked into a low, low price. Remember, justsaycare.org. Thanks. Okay, go listen to another podcast. Bye.